Amen. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15 in verse 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our souls this morning. We come this morning once again to a very familiar passage of Scripture which has, like last week's passage, often accompanied me over the past 40 years, and like all Scripture, never ceases to greatly amaze as well as greatly humble me. Often over the years I have sat quietly under the light of its divine truths, only to be amazed how its divine secrets continue to arise from its pages, like the fresh mercies and compassions of God, which Lamentation says are new every morning. So is the wonder of God's Word. You never find an end to it. The psalmist cried, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Though the psalmist had already been enlightened, yet he longed for yet more. As though the more divine enlightenment he graciously received, the more he longed for even greater enlightenment. As though with God's Word there's always something more to learn something more hidden within its text that God by His Spirit brings out to the surface when we are ready and prepared. It's amazing how the Word of God is to the child of God. God allows His truths to be hidden within its pages. And when the time is right and He sovereignly and providentially wishes to teach us a divine lesson, He'll bring that secret truth to the surface as though we've never seen it before, though we've read it countless times. That is the eternal, everlasting Word of God and its effect upon the hearts of God's children. 
Oh, that God would this morning open once again our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of His Word. And our text this morning is full of the wonders of Christ. And I pray that God would give me grace this morning to help you see a few of the divine truths this morning that I hope and pray would be a great encouragement to you as they have been to me over the years and even now again afresh new truths that have ravished my own soul for the things of Christ and what His Word has for us as believers. In verse 21, Then Jesus went thence, departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Beloved, Christ never wandered aimlessly or with no plan or purpose as He walked amongst men. And as He must needs go through Samaria, so too He must needs depart into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. The reason and purpose of His traveling to the coast of Tyre and Sidon was unbeknownst to all except Christ. The writer of Mark's Gospel, if you'll turn with me to chapter 7, the writer of Mark's Gospel in chapter 7, verse 24, would shed more light by declaring that Christ entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 24. And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Well, may we ponder these words for just a few moments. He entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. Is such a thing even possible? That he who passed through the midst of a multitude, undetected and unseen in Luke chapter 4, could not hide himself? He who veiled himself before Mary in the garden and concealed his person from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, is it possible that he could not hide himself? Surely he could have. Could he truly not hide himself that no man should know he was there? Yet, beloved, in his seclusion, listen to me. I want to look this morning how the compassion of Christ seeks out sinners. We've been preaching the last few weeks on his compassion. We see in our text how his compassion seeks out sinners. Seeks out sinners in his seclusion. He would open an effectual door, not for all men, for he would that no man knew it, but for a certain woman. Please give me your utmost attention this morning because 
in my studying anew of this text. It has greatly encouraged and ravished my soul for Christ when we apply these truths to our own salvation. He went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon, desiring not that any man should know he was there, but he could not be hid, but his seclusion would open up a effectual door for a certain woman, and not just any woman, but a Greek, a Canaanite, a Gentile. Now, you have to understand the importance of that. And I'm getting ahead of myself because in Matthew chapter 10, when he's sending out his disciples, he tells them, do not go in to the borders of the Gentiles, but only to the house of Israel. Yet now he comes to the very border of the Gentiles and seeks to hide in a house. But a certain woman... But a certain woman heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Keep that in your thoughts as we ponder this passage of Scripture this morning. Yet before we look further into this amazing truth, allow me quickly to draw your attention to what might appear to many to be very simple or insignificant. One which many might even accuse me of stretching too far or making too much light of. Yet I believe it to be a spiritual jewel, though small, yet just as much a jewel. Look in verse 25 of Mark chapter 7, verse 25. Mark chapter 7, verse 25. I'm sorry, 24. It says here that from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Watch this. And entered into and house. Now you say, preacher, there's not much very significant about that. Well, let's just stop for a moment, just quickly for a moment, and ponder these words. He went into a house to seek seclusion. Now, don't forget, this is the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. He's entered into a house to seek seclusion. It was within this house that Christ would abide. Scripture mentions Christ entering the house of Peter in Matthew chapter 8. He entered the house of Simon the leper, Scripture declares in Matthew 26. He entered into the house of Jairus in Mark chapter 5. He entered into the house of Levi in Luke chapter 5. He even entered into the house of a Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. But in our text, when Christ would seek seclusion, He enters into a house of whom no one knew. It simply says, He entered into a house. You think, well, preacher, that's not significant. If you lived in that house, it would be very much significant, don't you think? That Christ would come to your abode and seek seclusion? Why did we not hear of anyone who owned this house? Why does it not say the house of him or her or this person or that? Why does Scripture leave this silent? No name is given. Never a person would ever know whose house it was that Christ chose to abide and hide in. No one would ever know. Even to this day, we know not which house this was or to whom it belonged to. Yet, Christ chose to abide in this house. 
Preacher, what significance is that? Listen to me closely, because I really want to draw something out of this that I believe is significant. And again, people will accuse me of making much of little, but let them say what they want. But just listen to me. It doesn't matter whose house it was. It doesn't matter who the person was. For surely, wherever Christ chooses to abide, how rich and blessed is that silent and unseen servant. The servant the person of this house is not named, and yet Christ seeks to abide in this house. Here's the significance, I believe. All the other houses he entered in to do a miracle. This one he enters in to hide, but we don't know whose house it was. It's not fame, prosperity, attention, or applause. Listen to me. That a true servant of Christ seeks but solely to glorify Christ and that regardless of how lowly or base that service might appear to men. Nobody would ever know whose house Christ entered into. They would remain nameless. Yet it doesn't matter because Christ entered into that house. Christ knew. For some reason, known unto God himself, he chose to go into this house. No one in ever in history, throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church, no one would ever know whose house this was. It was a silent, unseen servant. No applause. His name not written in the eternal Word of God that every generation could read. It was Levi's house, or it was Jairus' house, or a Pharisee's house. No name is given. What significance is that? Because it doesn't matter if we're seen or applauded or we attract the attention of men. It doesn't matter as long as Christ abides in our house. I'm telling you, it greatly blessed my soul this week as I pondered this. A nameless lad with five barley loaves and two small fish. No one ever knew that boy's name. Do we have anything to feed him? Well, we have a lad here. That's all you hear. And Christ took his five barley loaves and two small fish and fed the multitudes. We never know the name of that lad, but he was used by Christ. That is what significant is. A nameless and poor widow, unseen and overlooked by those who cast in of their abundance, in the treasury, attracted the attention of Christ as she cast in all the living she had. No name is given of this poor widow woman, only that she attracted the attention of Christ. When others are casting in their abundance, she's casting in her two mites, and Christ said, this woman is cast in all her... We never know her name. We never know who she is. We never know from where she comes. She's a nameless, unknown person, yet she attracted the attention of Christ. Are you following me? I hope so, because I'm going to bring this to a height here in a minute. It doesn't matter how lowly and base our condition is. It doesn't matter if men see us. It doesn't matter if we're popular. It doesn't matter if we attract the attention of men. The important thing is that Christ is in the house. Do you follow me? An unnamed thief. Don't even know his name. Just named 
there was a thief, two thieves on a cross, who in his last hour, condemned and forgotten by the world, would accompany Christ that very same day into his kingdom. An unnamed thief. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his heritage. We don't know his name. Yet he accompanied Christ into his kingdom. Let me bring some more light into this with the psalmist in Psalm 123.2. Behold, as the eyes of a servant look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. The servant's eyes look under the hand of their masters. You know why? In the olden days, and I think I've said that before, in the olden days when the servants were serving the king, the servants had to watch the hands of the master because the king shouldn't have to say a word. All he had to do is make a gesture with his hand, and the servant had to run immediately. So he focused and fixed on the hands of his master. And when the master moved his hand, the servant immediately served his master. The master, the king, shouldn't have to say a word. But the eyes of the servant was fixed on the hands of his master. It wasn't fixed on those around them or what the other servants were doing. Their eyes must be fixed on the hands of the master. Keep your eyes on the hands of the master. And don't be worried what other people think or the attention other people's draw. Keep your eyes on the hands of the master and be pleased by just serving the Lord. It might be a nameless service, unseen, unbeknownst to others, but still Christ acknowledges it. We cannot all be John Gills, George Whitfields, Spurgeons. We can't all be like the Apostle Paul. We might not be part of a mega church. Yet if we truly and heartily serve Christ in the place and lot of His calling, we are most blessed and Christ just as greatly, if not more, honored and glorified by an unnamed, unknown servant. Christ entered into a house. You say, preacher, that's insignificant. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not if you own that house. <laughs> Something to be recognized. Something we should always remember. We might serve Christ in a lowly base place in the world where hardly few, if any people, recognize our service for Christ. Does it matter any as long as we're serving Christ? We might remain a small, simple church in the countryside, never growing to a great number of people. We pray and hope that we see many conversions, but what if God sovereignly decides that we remain a small? Would it matter as long as Christ is in the house? I don't care who you are. I don't care how well-known you are in Scripture. Popularity never serves the pride of man well. I don't care if you're the best theologian in America. have the largest church. Man still has a problem with pride. I've seen it in some of the greatest renowned preachers that are still alive today. Pride is man's enemy. So sometimes it's better and probably more glorifying to God when we simply have a house unbeknownst to others, but known to Christ. A few barley loaves and fishes of an unnamed lad, two mites of a poor widow, 
a thief hanging on a cross, a man sitting in a tree. Do you see how intimate Christ gets with his people? May we find comfort in that. Again, many might accuse me of making much out of little, but I believe there's something in there for us all. I want you to notice, next of all, the great compassion of Christ in seeking sinners. Look over in Mark again, chapter 7, in verse 24 and 5 again. He went to the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. She heard of him and came and fell at his feet. But Mark says he desired that no man should know he was there. Matthew declares she came out of the same coast. Tyrant side. He didn't go into Tyrant side. He was on the coast. He was on the border of it. Though Christ would have no man know where he was, this woman heard of him. We know not how or by whom. Maybe his popularity was spread across the countryside. Maybe people spoke widely and much about Christ. We don't know how. She, he just said she heard of him. And came and fell at his feet. And yet before we give her any credit for searching out Christ, let me ask you this question. Would she have come to Christ if he had not come to her borders? Would she have come to Christ if he had not come to her borders? Possibly. But then she'd have to enter into Israel's land, and she's a Greek, Samaritan. Possibly she would have. In her zeal, we kind of believe maybe she would have. But the question of is, Christ made it easier for her to find him. You say, well, didn't he didn't want no man? Well, again, Christ made it easier for her to find him. Please follow me. Would he have many not know his whereabouts with the divine exception of this one certain woman? Apply your own salvation to this as we go through this process, please. Christ would make it easier for her to find Christ. Getting ahead of myself. Look at your own salvation. What did Christ do? What mountains did he move? What divine providence did he <laughs> perform to bring you closer to him? Would his seclusion be a means for her to draw near to him? Was that the whole intention of him coming to Tyra and Sidon? Not for the multitudes, but for one certain woman, a Greek, a Gentile. Were all these circumstances coincidental? His coming into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, his entering into this house, even her daughters being grievously vexed with the devil, or was there a divine and sovereign purpose in all of these things? 
Was Christ sovereignly and providentially moving mountains for one woman? How intimate and personal do you think Christ's salvation is? Well, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out, for who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been His counselor. You know the reference of that in Romans chapter 11? The reference is concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. How the depth of his riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor in reference to the gospel? That God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Sinful man is so foolish that he would believe he can actually determine and discern God's sovereign will and purpose in regards to His divine compassion and grace towards sinners. That they have the foolish idea that they can understand and discern how God graciously calls His own unto Himself. He told His disciples, don't you mess with the Gentiles, but He would move to the borders for this one woman. Nobody knew why He went there. He did. Remember when he crossed the sea just for one man, possessed of a legion of devils? You remember when he said he must needs go through Samaria? No disciples find him talking to a Samaritan, a Gentile, but not only that, a woman in midday, in the heat of the day, came there in the heat of the day because she was embarrassed that other people might be there. She, she, she went in an hour when nobody would be there in hopes that nobody would see her because she knew what she was, yet Christ came to her at that moment, at that hour. This is what Christ does in saving sinners. It's an intimate and personal thing that God who created the heavens and the earth, that God who created everything would condescend and draw sinners individually, distinctly unto Himself, intimately and personally. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, Romans chapter 9 is also in regards to those who believe in God's divine election. Oh, they speak about God's divine election. And they speak about salvation as though they can determine who God elects and who God doesn't elect. God will have mercy on whom we have mercy, and He'll have compassion on whom we have compassion, regardless of your theological standpoint on election. If you think He can't save somebody who's unsaving, watch Him. That's what He does here. You don't go to the house, you don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go into the Gentiles. But I'm going to go to the border of Tyre and Sidon for a Gentile woman. For one woman. For one man possessed of a legion of devils. Christ would pass by blind Bartimaeus by the highway side. Coincidental? He passes by and Bartimaeus says, Who is that? That's Christ. And as Christ continues to move on, Bartimaeus cries out, The Son of David, have mercy on me. 
you know the story. Others try to keep him quiet. And he cries even louder. Was Christ passing by coincidental or providential for one man? Passing through Jericho, Christ would call Zacchaeus out of a sycamore tree. Who in the world looks up into a sycamore tree? Teeny little man. Climbs up so he can see Christ. Multitudes thronging him everywhere. Christ looks up in a tree and says, come down from the tree. Salvation has come to your house. It's an intimate. It's a personal thing. You know, Christ went through a lot in what we know to be lot. Not him. It's nothing for him to bring you and I closer to him. He took me halfway around the world, took me out of America and placed me in Germany to get my attention. What did he do for you? What providence? What mountains did he move in your life to draw your attention to him? How did he sovereignly and providentially move to draw your hearts and affections to him? This is the divine and wonderful grace of God's election. It's not a dry doctrine. It's a personal and intimate calling that God does of his own choosing. He use, chooses the manner, he chooses the method, and he don't care what man thinks about his methods. I astound that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. You know not what meat I have to eat. A woman diseased with an issue of blood 12 years would merely touch the hem of Christ's garment as he passed by again. Did he pass by simply coincidental or did he know the woman was there and passed by as she reached out and merely touched the hem of his garment? And, oh, he said, grace has left me. Virtue has left me. And they said, are you crazy? Everybody's touching you. Oh, he said, but somebody touched me. Jesus passing by would heal a blind man born blind from his birth. The stories go on. Beloved, you need to ponder these things. Because we're not talking about a prophet. We're talking about the very Son of God. We're talking about the Savior of the world. He doesn't come down and say, okay, boom, the multitude of you are saved. As he walked amongst men, he went individually, personally, intimately, and said, you, and you, and you, and you. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy that we share, none other has ever known. That's impossible. All Christians know that. No, the joy that we have as Christians of Christ, as though none other ever knew it. It's that personal, that intimate why would he go to the coast of Tyra and Sidon? For one certain woman. Each one of these encounters with Christ were as distinct, listen to me, an individual as that of a snowflake. Do you know they say there's no two snowflakes that are identical? Your salvation is unlike any others. Oh, same grace. <laughs> Same sacrifice, but the manner and method of God's calling you out of sin is distinct like none other. The results are the same. The effects are the same. 
but it's distinct and individual like none other. In God's sovereign calling of sinners, like I said, each are not only distinct and individual, but most personal and intimate. A certain woman heard of him. Look back on Mark chapter 7. The end of Mark chapter 7. But he could not be hid. The last words of that verse, 24. But he could not be hid for a certain woman. That's why he could not be hid. What drew this woman to Christ? Oh, surely her need because of her daughter, but what drew this woman to Christ? Nothing short of the sovereign grace of God. And we're going to look deeper into the reason why. And God sometimes uses some very strange and yet some very painful things to draw us to Christ. If this woman's daughter had never been grievously vexed with the devil, she probably would have never sought out Christ. Why was this man born blind? What sin did he as a parent? No, not sin, Christ said, but I, that the mighty works of God might be shown in him. God sometimes will use drastic things in calling us to himself. But beloved, if they lead us to Christ, they are mercy, God's mercies in disguise. And oh, how he treated her different than any other she came to him in a spirit of worship and praise and adoration. And at first he says not a word. We wonder at God's word, but we're amazed at his silence. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't even answer. Oh, beloved, we have much to learn from this text. Not only to be re remembered and reminded of our own salvation, but be reminded of God's grace and mercy in Christ Jesus in calling sinners unto himself. Christ never wandered in this earth aimlessly or with no purpose. Everything that Christ did in your and my life providentially before bringing us to the point of salvation, Christ had providentially determined everything before that. Christ had providentially led us to those points in life where we could be closest to him. Just like he went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon for this certain woman. Is that how you look at your salvation, or is it just some kind of, well, God saved me and I prayed. Oh, much more went into your salvation than you think. Much more love and compassion of the eternal God went into the purposing and planning and performing and fulfilling and giving you salvation than you ever thought. It's an intimate relationship. Why do you think Christians have such an intimate relationship? Why do you think Brainerd said Christ has come down from heaven and stole my heart and ran away to heaven with it? That's salvation. It begins intimately with Christ, and that intimacy with Christ grows greater each day that we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the apprehension of which Paul cried he, he sought after. He pressed forward. This is the infinite love and mercy and grace of Christ. And like we said yesterday in prayer meeting, 
when we sang that song about loving Christ, the old, old story. Uh, when we get to heaven, I don't think we'll ever get bored of the story of the love of Christ. I don't think even in heaven where love is in perfection that we'll ever come to the end of knowing and praising and worshiping and adoring the love of Christ. It's going to be something we're going to ponder and be amazed at throughout eternity. Why don't we start now? Thanking Him. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Oh, our forefathers knew exactly how to word it right. Amen. Let me to thy bosom fly. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thine courts above. Christ departed to the coast of Tyre and Sidon for one certain woman. Christ moved mountains to draw you and I in that divine calling, in that divine election. It wasn't just some kind of theological thing he decided. It was personal, passionate, loving, intimate. That's what salvation is. And I hope and pray that we would ponder that on this Lord's Day. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you now, Lord, for thy word. We thank you, Lord, for the jewels, the nuggets, Lord, that you show us out of thy word that, Lord, helps us to be enravished by your love and your mercy and your grace. And Father, I pray that we would take each and every word of our, this text, and, Lord, we ponder upon them. We pray over them until, Father, Lord, they burn with inside of our hearts like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. May you, Father, be honored and glorified. And may we know something more of the love of God which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And, oh, Lord, I pray that we'd seek more of Christ. Open thou our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. We love you and thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>